This is the first episode of my new members-only podcast called The Russia Contingency on War in the Rocks. I am sitting right now in a train car with my good friend Ryan Evans and my other good friend Conrad Muzika, fellow military analyst in the field. And we are on a train that's left Kiev and we're heading back out on a long train ride to Poland as we speak. Yeah, it's been an interesting trip. We've been in Ukraine. We were in there for about a week and went all over the place. Conrad, where, where are all the places we went? So we spent some time in Kiev. Uh, then we went down south uh, to see what the situation is in Odessa. We traveled uh, across uh, Kherson and Mykolaiv oblasts. And then through Kriverich, we went back to uh, Kiev. And we also did some traveling around Bucha, Irpin, and Hostomel. Yeah, Lynn, let's start with that. Uh, I feel I think it's fair to say we got a nice little staff ride and learned some really interesting things. What 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 did we learn, especially in Irpin and Bucha and around there, that made you revisit some things that you thought about the opening phase of the war, or at least plugged some holes in terms of what we understood about what happened? Sure. So I think the staff ride's primarily kind of Irpin, Bucha, and Gostomel, and to me, in some ways, it validated what I thought before about the opening of this war. I always felt that the first five days were really, or maybe the first week or so, was really the decisive initial period of this war where the Russian operation, the attempted regime change to get into Kiev failed. And the question was how it failed. And I always thought that this wasn't overdetermined at all, that this was, you know, as much as I've used the word, very contingent, very much dependent on individual actions of volunteers, of people making choices to stay, of people getting orders to retreat and and either refusing them or being engaged. And, and a lot of things coming together in an interesting way. History often works this way. I think what we learned was that much of the initial battle was actually fought by volunteers without much in the way of reinforcement. So it was mostly civilians, but also veterans with maybe some support from minor elements of the Ukrainian military, but really mostly on their own. And many of these volunteers were veterans. For many folks here in Ukraine, it's very clear that this war doesn't start on February 22nd. It starts in 2014. They, many of them who volunteered and who fought early on had fought before in 2014 and 2015. And, and it was a, a set of networks, horizontal networks of people who showed up to the fight. Some were prepared. Some got access to weapons early on. And to be frank, it was very chaotic. The truth is that Kiev was not well defended. The defense was not well organized. It's very clear when listening to their stories that things came together much better later on. But, but at the very beginning, the Russian plan was to try to catch Ukraine cold. And many of the regular army units were not in position to defend the capital. And there was a lot of volunteers and a lot of civilians who showed up and prior veterans who fought hard to try to defend it. Some plans did come together, such as raising the water level in the reservoir and flooding the rivers and blowing the bridges to block the Russian advance. But a tremendous amount of chaos and friendly fire in those early days, too. A lot of people just using their networks to try to coordinate the defense. And maybe I'm not really sure, not fully sure of where the lines were, you know, war is chaotic, situational yeah, awareness. They were talking about how perfect. things move back and forth a lot, a lot, quite a lot. Yeah, it was really down these avenues, these main streets. It was a dynamic situation, you know, the fighters themselves were just as worried about their own forces behind them as they were about the Russian airborne or the Russian naval infantry ahead of them. You know, Ukrainian troops thought that they had already lost their pin. You know, there were fighters in their pin who were holding, you know, more than half of the town. It, it was a, a situation where... 
in the early days, it wasn't clear to a lot of the forces how the best align support communication, who held what. It was very dynamic. It was chaotic. And it, it, it it's fascinating how it came together. This, of course, still a very imperfect picture. But at least looking back now, I think we learned a lot more about that early days and the actual battle for Kiev. Yeah, it sort of, I think, makes you really want to listen to the Russian stories about how they thought the initial days of the war played out from their side. Ob obviously, this is something that at least currently we have no access to. Uh, but when I was listening to these stories, I was wondering how actually lucky Ukrainians were to be able to defend the Kiev to an extent that they did eventually that completely broke uh, Russian advances on the city um, during these first uh, few days. And, and as someone who lives in Poland, uh, where there's obviously a lot of discussions or there were actually in the past a lot of discussions about um, you know, possible Russian at attack on Poland or Baltic states, regardless how rea realistic they were. Uh, it just makes you wonder how much effort actually needs to be put into defense pre preparations and the preparations of civilian so society to actually be able to sustain the initial wave of Russian attacks. So one thing I learned a lot more about, which was one of the longer running mysteries for me, was the, what happened to the Russia intelligence operation? Because in the run-up to the war, folks like me assumed that Russia had a real ground game organized by the FSB and other agencies, that they were planning for something, some kind of coup, people to meet their forces. Because otherwise, their plan seemed a little, you know, it seemed a little bit nuts, seemed a little bit facts, right? And in conversation with volunteers, with other people who had fought in these battles, it's very clear that there was actually a Russian plan. There were collaborators. There were people who had moved to these towns, rented houses, had had actually brought weapons, and people who were escorting Russian forces, there were collaborators, there was a scheme that the Russian intelligence services had put together that the Russian military depended on. It, it didn't come together, it failed, thankfully, but there was this other side of the operation that was kind of dark to us military analysts that we sort of assumed was there. We, we could sense it, but we couldn't really feel it or touch it in terms of what it was going to be. A lot of those weapons caches where these Rus these pro-Russian collaborators had stored their supplies actually ended up being where some of the Ukrainian volunteers got some of their weaponry to resist Russian forces. Yeah, and, and obviously look, looking forward, there are countries in uh, Eastern Europe which have a quite sizable Russian minority living uh, in them. So it's a big problem, I think, for internal security services to track uh, these populations and, you know, and try to address uh, this problem, which, which, you know, which, which had a, uh, which could have had a very big impact on the situation could, near Kiev. Could we walk through the, the chronology a little bit? Basically, from what we learned, these volunteers, you know, the citizen resistance, reinforced by veterans, of course, or veterans as a part of it, with maybe some soft units kicking around, really were on their own for at least a week. Is that right? In many respects, so... In Irpin and Bucha. There were units backing them with artillery and what have you, but they were behind the river, behind Irpin. They were largely on their own. Their coordination was poor with other forces. They weren't sure how to connect or coordinate with uh, 72nd Brigade, you know, in nor northeast of this entire sector in Chernyiv, the 1st Tank Brigade apparently 
was initially told to retreat but couldn't. It was engaged and it was holding on its own. Uh, other units were pulling up reinforcements. Other brigades were making contact with the Russian force from Eastern Military District on the outer sort of belt road by Makarov and, and uh, who were essentially screening the Russian airborne. But the early days were very chaotic and many of these fighters were, were, were trying to fight Russian forces. Yes, it's clear there were military intelligence and other units supporting them, but quite small. Uh, and, and, and engaging in various forms of direct action. But in general, for the first week, they were largely on their own with art, mixed artillery support from the units that were in, in the capital. We met the person who, uh, who was involved in the ambush of the Russian forces near uh, Brovary. And it was very interesting to actually to speak to him and to gain hear his perspective. And he's only 22 years old and apparently man managed to knock out a Russian T-72. Um, so, you know, there were, as, as Mike just said, there were a lot of young pe people involved. There were a lot of volunteers. And I share his opinion that uh, the initial period of war on the Ukrainian side was very dis disorganized. Yeah, I'll just, say, I'll just add to that, that one of our drivers was also at the tank ambush at Bavari, not the famous one that people saw uh, with the, a, a large tank BTG, but the earlier one. And a couple of the folks and, and uh, uh, in many ways, our staff right guy was a, was a woman who had fought extensively in Irpin and was from Irpin herself. So we met a lot of the individuals who spoke to us that were generally involved in these fights and participating in them individually and are still, many of them are still in this war. And, you know, something this whole, everything we learned about this first phase of the war, these opening days of the war, especially reinforces something that that uh, we knew about Ukraine, but we seeing it up close was different, obviously. And One thing that I kind of observed, and I guess in many respects, I may have known or thought this about Ukraine, but it is very much a ground-up effort, and it's an effort, it's a composite of horizontal lengths, right? It, it may seem from the outside as, yes, Ukrainians are outfighting the Russian military in a lot of aspects in this war, but Look, war is chaotic, and even a good military operation, when you look at it, is pretty, pretty ugly and pretty messy, right? That's why it's a joke when something's not run well. People often say this must be a military operation, you know, facetiously. But the, the Ukrainian effort is very much a ground-up effort with a lot of people making connections. In this first, in these opening days, especially. So, absolutely. Still, still absolutely. to a certain extent, but especially in these opening and, days. And it still is, from what we saw, and, and, and we, we definitely got, got to see... Uh, certain aspects of the battlefield, but it is very much a, an effort of individuals making connections, uh, taking initiative, uh, and and it's far less vertically structured than, than it may appear. And it is a collective effort of individuals putting together their agency, their contacts, and their resources, right? It's very interesting. It is, you do feel it much more as a civil society fight. Perhaps more than anything else. And this is, uh, as, as someone else observed uh, much earlier in the war, that's as Putin's blind spot is civil society is when, because this is really a societal war where all of Ukraine has mobilized, very little of Russia has mobilized in response. I think it's also important to mention that uh, a lot of Russian speakers are actually mobilized. So something that Putin believed, or, I, or we think we, he believed would be his strength, which would be you know, the Russian spe speakers. Actually, many of them turned them back on Russia and on Russia's support, and they are now op openly 
supporting Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Yeah, it's why he thought that he could just roll into Kharkiv, for example, which is a predominantly Russian-speaking city. But of course, turns out people don't like being bombed even when you speak the same language as them. Yes, and the same goes for Mariupol, which was one of the most pro-Russian cities just before the war, and the city was turned into rubble. What were your impressions of, uh, of Odessa? Well, it comes to Odessa first. It was great to visit because I feel Odessa is just one of those very, very cultural spots of Ukraine. But, you know, my impression of Odessa was, frankly, and this is going to sound a bit ridiculous, Odessa, like the other cities we visited, were dark because of electricity conservation, because these strikes are affecting the Ukrainian power grid, right? Yes. Yeah, so we, so our, the timing of our trip, for, for those listening, is we arrived a few days after um, these major Iranian swarm attacks and Russian missile attacks. Uh, it was actually very quiet while we were in Kyiv. Um, there were a few air raid sirens, but no strikes that we could discern, at least. So here's my view. People are out. They're living their lives. But the truth of it is there's a curfew at 11 p.m. Many people then have to close things down and get home before then. It's it's very dark in a lot of cities. Some cities that we end up staying in, which is completely lights out. And and the you know, the situation was kind of bittersweet. I thought it was great going to Odessa, and it was a stopover point where we had some discussions and meetings. But and, and we were out there, and we could see across the Black Sea. We could see the, the row of cargo ships to pick up grain. We could see the lights on a distance. It, it, you know, you could see down the sea towards Sevastopol on the one hand. But it, you could also sense the impact of this war on Ukraine and and the fact that this spate of attack, this kind of, I don't know, blitz is a poor analogy because blitz is a particular thing that happened to Britain, but it's to some extent an attempt at a blitz by Russian forces, it does affect Ukrainian lives. The one thing that really struck me was where the long queues uh, of trucks with grain attempting to enter the order support, kilometers and kilometers long queues with, with these trucks. Uh, yeah, up to Mikolaev and beyond and, Mikolaev, yes. driving from Odessa. It was just exactly. tons of them. And tons they, of them. they were just waiting, yep. waiting yep. to be told that they could keep driving yep. and unload their cargo. Yeah, and essentially when we were going into Odessa, what I noticed was also hundreds, if not thousands, of, actually, of trucks uh, traveling up north from uh, Odessa, having left their uh, grain in, in in port. So definitely there is a massive uh, effort on the Ukrainian side to to fulfill its uh, its obligations to provide grain to the world. Yeah, so, you know, it's a slightly, pers you had a slightly personal moment in Mikolaev, Mike. I did. I It, it, it was a, like a very minor detour. It, it wasn't very much in the southeastern district of Mikolaev, the sort of shipbuilding district. And I, you know, I, I asked kind of our group to, to stop by my grandfather's old house. And believe it or not, it's, it was still standing. It was still there. It, uh, in the original kind of green gate was, was around that. I, it's been many years, I'll be honest. We left Ukraine a long time ago. The house was sold, and the, the owners weren't there. Like I can see, you know, at the house, nothing but stacks of bottles of water. And the windows were boarded up. Yeah, the windows were boarded up, bottles of whatever. Because Mikolaev gets bombarded on a daily basis. That city gets rocketed and struck by drones. 
probably more so than almost than any other city in Ukraine, to be perfectly honest. And when we crossed the bridge to the eastern part of town, we knew we were we were definitely in the part of Mykolaiv that saw daily attacks during daytime, and many things were boarded up. the The, the situation was, yeah, well, I wouldn't say it was overly dangerous, but it wasn't risk free. Anyway, it, it was really good to see my grandfather's house, and. And what I would add to that conversation... To be clear, we were going there anyway. We didn't go there to see Mike's grandfather's house, but it was actually very close to our stopover point in Mikolaev. Yeah, we, we did have a stopover in Mikolaev and to, to meet with colleagues there, but so it was very much on the way. That said, the uh, for me, there were two aspects of their personal. It wasn't just seeing my grandmother's house, but the, the Ukrainians that were with us, that were kind of our escort and the folks taking us around... They themselves were actually really excited to take me there. In fact, some of them I think might have been more excited than I was, to be honest, about the like the, the sentimental aspect of it. So so I found I found that I, I anyway, I, I found that very heartwarming. As someone who reads about the frontline situation on a daily basis and reads about Mikolaev and how it's bombed every single day, it was I don't want to say it was in, interesting, but it was it was actually important to see how much damage is done to Mikolaev on a daily basis by Russian rockets and missiles which are fired into the city. And mind you, most of the rockets that are actually fired come from S-300 SAM systems. So Russia is essentially what it does, it just fires missiles onto Mik Mikolaev. Really just targeting directionally? Yes. Rather so than... they don't know where the missile will land, they don't know what, what will happen with it. And in Mikolaev, what really struck me is the level of destruction of civilian properties and residential areas above all because there's actually very little military presence in the city as you can imagine so most of the destruction if not all of the destruction is, is actually made to the residential areas and that's obviously horrible that's yeah, true i mean for the ukrainian forces are pushed forward now towards kherson city they're not hanging around in Mikolaev, but yet Russia is still bombarding this city in the way that it wishes it could still do to Kiev, uh, if not for the Ukrainian Air Force and other countermeasures that the Ukrainians seem to be adapting to very quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And that's the Russian way of war. And I don't think that uh, Russian approach will change in this war at all. Something else I think we should discuss. We, we got uh, down near the front a bit. Uh, and even though the South is this sort of rolling rural area, uh, it was useful seeing in person. Uh, you know, this is a very underdeveloped, economically speaking, part of Ukraine. It's very a lot of poor villages that really only have a couple paved roads, uh, a lot of dirt roads. You know, it's very muddy terrain when it rains, very difficult terrain for infantry especially, but also for vehicles. So it was interesting seeing that up close. And this is where this sort of artillery slog and these offensives as Ukrainian forces advance towards Kyrgyzstan are taking place. My sense of it, what, what I got out of the trip, and I think I think we're, we're pretty reasonable in our approach of where, where we went, but uh, what I saw, uh, let's say, near the front lines was first just the, the challenge of navigating and the challenge of logistics and supply, the mix of vehicles, the the composite of civilian or volunteer purchase vehicles that Ukrainians were using. I saw a number of hours. We passed American MRAPs. We passed Humvees. We passed Medevac vehicles. We passed a mix of Western equipment for sure. 
in our travels, but we saw a lot of civilian gear. We saw a lot of older equipment being used and improvised. And we saw Ukrainians in a pretty serious fight, to be perfectly frank, in Kherson uh, against uh, Duggan Russian forces. We, we were not in Kherson, in the city, it should be said, or anywhere near the city, but no. we were, yeah. Close, yeah in, close enough to observe from no, afar. In the, in the Kherson, the region, not the Kherson, the city, as we, as we sort of, tr as we transit. And you could see that the weather had an effect. Roads were muddy. Many roads were either potholed or blown out. It was very hard just to travel, just in a vehicle, uh, let, let alone provide supplies. We saw the challenge of Ukrainian logistics and supporting units, not just basically in rear areas. Um, I, I think, to be perfectly frank, I think it's fair to say that despite the Russian logistical challenges, they clearly have enough artillery ammunition to sustain barrages and return fire. On the uh, Russian side, yeah. Yeah, on the Russian side. that the folks, who, the folks who think that disruption of the ground lines of communication against the Dnieper River have rendered the Russian military toothless, I, I can very confidently say that that is very much not the case. It is a hard fight in Kherson. I don't know, Conrad, if you want to add to that, <laughs> you were there right next to me. Yeah, so there was a talk on Twitter, and we both are very active on Twitter, about Russian inability to conduct uh, counter-battery strikes. And I can assure you firsthand that this is not the case. Although, I think it needs to be stated that uh, whereas you know, a couple of months ago, a few months ago, Russia had a distinct, a distinct advantage in artillery fires. I think now this is coming to a stage where there is some sort of parity, or maybe even Russia, uh, or maybe even U Ukraine enjoys um, some sort, some sort of superiority in artillery fires. We heard of a case where, when. Um, uh, Ukrainian artillery was extremely active for one for one full day and engaged most of its uh, Western supplied uh, capabilities and then uh, Russian ar artillery went silent for two days uh, but nevertheless Russians did regain uh, their strike capability and they did conduct uh, additional strikes after that yeah, it was interesting, you know I'd look out the window while we were driving around there one moment and I'd see some very old piece of kit and then I'd look out the next moment and I'd see some Western supplied artillery and a Starlink terminal along the side of the road. It was interesting seeing this mix of stuff. Yeah, it, 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 I, I hate to use this term. It's a little steampunky in that you're, you're passing things from uh, the 70s and 80s along with things from 2022. Then I would say is, look, here's my impression of, of the front. Ukrainian morale is high, all right? It, it, you get the sense that extremely high extremely yeah. high they're doing well they they have a host of challenges any military does in the field they are winning slowly but they are winning they're making progress that's the impression the 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 fight is a hard one i think sometimes it see it looks way too easy the way it's discussed on social media and it really isn't certainly not if you're there seeing it and you know you get you get the general impression that uh Ukrainians are very committed. They believe in what they're doing. Spirits overall are high. And they understand that this may, this may very well, it's not a short war. They understand that this may be a long war. And they're committed to it. Yes. And we, of course, got asked a lot of questions, especially Mike and I, about American politics. Probably the question I got asked the most, actually, definitely the question I got asked the most, 
was should the Ukrainians worry about the midterms, especially if Republicans do well? And uh, it was, you know, there's there is this keen sense. You know, I, I, I got no impression from the Ukrainians that they believe they are owed support. They very much understand that they need to earn that they've earned. They're earning the support and they're very uh, grateful for it. And a lot of gratitude expressed, not that I'm doing anything, I, I just run a website, but a lot of gratitude expressed to America towards doing this, but a lot of anxiety about whether and how it will continue. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely say that I got a lot of these questions. I think that it's clear from the Ukrainian side that without uh, Western support, and especially American support, this war has a very different trajectory potentially after May and June. And of many, this year, yeah, earlier this, this year. year. And many Ukrainians appreciate that, you know, their success in some many respects hinges on sustainability of external military support. And so they have these questions. And it was almost, to be perfectly honest, disappointing because the person who lives in D.C., I'm, I'm probably the last one who is politically, sat, politically knowledgeable enough to answer them what happens after these elections. But you can sense the trepidation concern. One the, the biggest question on Ukrainian minds is, to what extent they can count on sustainability American support given likely changes in American politics and what the implications are for them. They don't know what they are. They're just concerned. They're, they're knowledgeable enough to be concerned about what it might be. I think from my point of view, speaking as a Paul as in, and as a European, I think you know, Ukrainian Ukrainians can rely on the Polish su support, definitely. Poland is willing and you know, probably capable in the short to medium term to provide Ukraine with as much capability as it's as it as as it has. But a lot a lot will actually depend on the Polish modernization prog programs and the Polish ability to replace you know Soviet legacy uh, systems with uh, brand new Abrams or K2 tanks from South Korea. Yeah, tanks came up, and it was interesting getting more uh, because you know Ukrainians from different factions and movements uh, and groups arrive in Washington and saying with their own lists of equipment that they want, and so sometimes it's a little dizzying and and often contradictory. But what we did hear, you know, from some well-placed people that uh, Ukraine wants tanks, and it was interesting hearing the rationale. It's not, of course, we can understand why tanks could be useful, but Mike. Conrad, don't they have very large stores of tank, Soviet-era tanks of their own? Uh, so my impression is, yes, they do, and they've captured quite a few Russian tanks as well. They're very compatible uh, with the tanks and parts that they have. Uh, that said, I think that Ukraine long-term faces two big challenges. The first one is a dwindling amount of Soviet-type munitions, Soviet-caliber munitions across the board. We knew very, very well about artillery in the spring, right? But, but actually, I think, affects over time all parts of equipment. And the second one is transitioning to systems that Western countries can actually help supply, maintain, provide parts for. And, and so there's two interrelated problems, right? One is a basic problem of large-scale conventional war consumes your ammunition like nothing else. And a second problem of sustainability. Well, I am going to say something that is very basic. It's actually extremely basic. It is a very high intensity war, very high. And the amounts of ammunition that, that are needed to support Ukrainian efforts are massive. It is clear to me that Europe is not prepared to 
support uh, Ukrainian efforts at this stage. In terms of volume of, of in munitions? In terms of volume of, of ammunition that needs to be supplied. So, you know, there's definitely some food for thought for you, for Europeans to actually think about what what sort of uh, ammunition stockpiles they actually need to have prepared for any sort for any sort of contingency that will be needed uh, in the future you know, should Russia re-emerge from this conflict in yeah, whatever yeah. form. I agree. Uh, and, you know, and just but just back to the tank point is it really does come back to those munitions is they need more. They have the tanks, the Soviet and Russian tanks, but they don't have the munitions. And the only way they can get the munitions are from the West, which means they need to use, you know, Western tanks. And what they really want is the Leopard. And uh, Germany is, of course, a sticking point on that. Yeah. And I mean, the very same thing happened with artillery where Ukrainians are running out or have already run out with, uh, you know, Soviet uh, projectiles and now they mostly rely on on equipment and shells provided by the Western Europe. For me, I'll just be frank, it was great coming back. I haven't been back to Ukraine in several years, not before COVID, to be perfectly honest. So it's been a couple of years for me. This trip was not a glad handing trip in Kiev. This was a trip where we Went with a convoy all the way from Kiev down south. Over 800 miles. Yeah. it This this trip was Total. very extended trip. I can't remember the last time I spent this much time in, in, in vehicles of various kinds. We, we, we were far south. We were, I think, let's put it this way. Our Ukrainian colleagues made clear to us that we were probably the first foreigners that were in the newly liberated territory since the Kherson Offensive. Uh, over the last several weeks, and it certainly looked and felt that way. So it it was an interesting experience. We had really good conversations with field units and junior commanders. We had really good conversations with generals and commanders of different units. We we had the opportunity to engage a few senior leaders and and a mix of folks who were involved. To me, actually, one of the most fascinating things were those people who were plugged in making the horizontal connections. They were in different fights. They were linking kind of the infrastructure together. And for Connor and me, these are people we knew. These are people we had known for some months in interactions, let's say, in, in various discussions and efforts, but had never met. And they sort of materialized in corporeal form for us as individuals who were who ended up in the car. And, and we sort of realized that, hey, we've been talking to these people on in, in one format or another over the past several months. So. Over encrypted messaging apps, but yeah. then you got to meet with them and drink with them in person. Yes, they were they were anonymous folks on encrypted messaging apps, but they became very real on the strip, let's say, somewhere between Odessa and Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, well, uh, Ukraine is certainly full of colorful characters. I've, I've learned that. It's my first time, was my first time to Ukraine. Well, I may add that I very much hope that it was the first trip that we uh, took, uh, that, that actually materialized and it which was very eventful and which provided us with a lot of food for thought and i very much hope that's uh, not the last one i just i just want to thanks to both of you and another colleague that that came came with me on this this is a bit of a i in some respects i will say i think it's great we did this i'm almost remiss that we that that we hadn't done it sooner but i'm mostly appreciative that we did this at a particular difficult time for Ukraine, I felt Ukrainians were too. Like these last two weeks were particularly challenging for Ukrainians, given all the strikes and missile attacks and whatnot. 
And so I think it was almost more important for them to see that people were still willing to come. They were still willing to visit and to show up and not just show up in Kiev, but show up in actually other parts of Ukraine. I also would like to make an ode, a tribute. We're actually all drinking a little Jameson on the train here. It's a, it's a, it's an overnight train. An ode to a cheers to the Ukrainian gas station. Uh, Ukrainian gas stations are actually quite delightful. They have these great hot dogs. Uh, you can buy all sorts of things in them, and they better be delightful because Ukrainians take more rest stops on road trips. <laughs> these weren't road trips. These were, I guess, in military parlance, you'd call them ground movements, which they were. I mean, it's, it is a war zone. But, uh, but boy, did we take a lot, of, a lot of gas station smoke breaks when we didn't need gas. Yeah, I'll just add, Ryan discovered that we do have a, there's a cultural difference in place. <laughs> and, and that is that unlike Americans who take a break or two and they get to a destination, Ukraine Probably the height of, Ukra- of American, ma- sorry, probably the height of American masculinity is saying, I'm not saying this is a good thing, I don't think it is, is saying how long the road trip you took where you didn't make one stop. Yeah, that's not that's not that's not the case in Ukraine. As Ryan discovered, Ukraine's like taking several breaks, catching up, chatting with folks, having a cigarette. And then one thing Ukrainians like to do is before you get to the destination, <laughs> twenty minutes beforehand. Twenty minutes to, away. They just to take a twenty minute break. <laughs> it drives as I discovered, it drives Americans crazy. <laughs> it drives them crazy to take an extended break right before you get to the place you're going to instead of just pushing through and getting there. Anyway, it it um it, it was interesting. We got to travel in several different kinds of convoys with different types of folks, different kinds of fighters from different troops. And I, I'm very thankful for it. I'm, I'm also thankful to be, you know, on the train head, heading back home. Yeah, and it was just great. The, the special thanks to those who kept us safe, alive, and entertained along the way. Just to add, uh, it is clear that Ukrainian spirit remains strong. They are extremely motivated. Uh, they are quite certain that uh the tables have turned and that uh maybe the end of the war is not necessarily near uh but uh they are quite capable of winning this war um in the medium to long term they can feel it coming over the horizon 